I'm Denzel Mohammed, and this is Jobmakers. Jobmakers is a new podcast launched in March, produced by Pioneer Institute, Think Tank in Boston, and the Immigrant Learning Center, a not-for-profit that gives immigrants a voice. Every Thursday at noon, I talk with risk takers, immigrants who create new jobs, products, and services in Massachusetts and across the United States, building on the entrepreneurial spirit that led them to America in the first place. When we return, we'll meet this week's immigrant entrepreneur. The entrepreneurial spirit among immigrants and refugees allows them the flexibility to pursue unexpected courses of action, adapt, accept risk, and make the most of opportunities they didn't even know of before. For Dr. Amar Sahani from India, that started at the University of Texas at Austin with 30 job rejections out of 30 applications. But he started a path that would see him go in directions hitherto unknown, getting a PhD, helping found a company, journeying to Boston, and starting a string of new companies using his chemical engineering background to save lives through remarkable local therapy innovations. To date, he has founded eight companies, accounting for 4,000 jobs and more than $2 billion in revenue. He's been named a champion of change by the White House, one of the five most innovative medical device CEOs by Mass Device, the EY Regional Entrepreneur of the Year, even the Immigrant Learning Center's own Immigrant Entrepreneur Award for Life Science Business. But his influence extends well beyond that space into environmental conservationism, safeguarding refugees, mentoring and promoting STEM education, and building public understanding of America's Sikhs, as you'll hear in this week's episode of Jobmakers. Dr. Sahani, thank you for joining us on Jobmakers. Um, I would ask you typically, you know, describe your, your business, but for you, I think I would want to ask you describe um, the vision for your businesses and what kind of impact you think your businesses uh, would have. So uh, the vision for my businesses is uh, uh, to be able to deliver local therapies uh, that can make an impact in patients' lives, a meaningful impact in patients' lives. What I mean by local therapies is is often manifestation of disease that takes place at a fairly local site. Uh, And uh, to be able to treat that with a local therapy is better than to treat it with a systemic therapy, meaning giving it, for example, giving a pill that goes everywhere in your body versus uh, we have um, uh, created, for example, at my one of my last companies, Ocular Therapeutics, a little insert uh, uh, smaller than a rice grain that goes into your tear duct that replaces the entire course of eye drops after surgery. Similarly, we've done things where we have uh, created spacers that go between the prostate and the rectum. So that in another company of Menix, which is now part of Boston Scientific, where uh, we are able to minimize any radiation side effects. So, uh, so that radiation, which would otherwise cause complications uh, for the patient for a lifetime, by use of this, uh, it spares the rectum and the side effects that might come from it. So these are types of local therapies that we are creating. We are now in my latest company, Instilla, uh, have a way to fill tumors with uh, a liquid material that solidifies 
almost instantly and shuts down the blood supply to the tumors, thus shrinking them. Uh, so local therapies uh, using uh, sometimes these types of materials, hydrogels that I have um, uh, created for uh, uh, use inside the body uh, are basically a unifying theme. And your journey toward uh, this goal started um, through rejection, right? Uh, you were rejected yeah. for 30 jobs at uh, University of Texas. Uh, describe what that was like and what led you onto this path. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I had come from India um, uh, to do my master's and PhD at the University of Texas. And in India, I had, you know, access to good jobs, uh, higher education, et cetera. I actually rarely encountered failure. Uh, generally, most things had come fairly easily to me. Uh, so coming to the United States, I did my master's degree and uh, I had gotten a scholarship for it. And I did what most people would do, apply to all the campus jobs I could find. But since I did not have a green card, I did not have an H-1 visa. And at that time, this was back in 89, uh, uh, most of the U.S. companies were not as familiar with providing the paperwork and stuff needed for an immigrant. And as a result, um, I applied to 30 jobs thinking that, you know, I just need one. You know, I don't need all of them to be successful. But uh, since most of them didn't understand what uh, paperwork would be involved, they summarily rejected me, uh, which was quite devastating. Uh, I'd never had this type of rejection before. And I wondered what had happened. You know, I'd come to this new country and uh, was there something wrong with me? It's a lot of introspection went into that. But uh, rather than blame the system and complain about it, I think it is, it's important to be sort of positive, action-oriented. I spoke to my advisor, um, Dr. Jeffrey Hubble, who is just a stellar individual himself. And he advised me that, uh, you know, you may want to consider doing a PhD. And to think about it, that would have been somewhat, you know, counterintuitive because you would think you just gotten rejected after doing a master's. Do you really want to double up and do a PhD? But I did that, and uh, in that we did some really exciting, interesting work where we did chemistries inside the body that would kind of be allow you to make sort of 3D printing is all the rage right now, right? Back back in 89, 90, we were doing this type of 3D printing, so to speak, or making materials inside the body using light uh, and polymerizing them in very, very fast ways, uh, so forming uh, implants in the body. And that created a couple of companies and that created my first job. So I moved to the Boston area uh, as a result of that new company being founded, a company called Focal. And I remember you talking to me and, and about your journey into entrepreneurship and like raising money and just the fascinating concept of you being a, a, for, a foreign individual in the U.S., um, admittedly looking, looking different, mm -hmm. sounding different, and yet people were willing to give you money for, for your ideas. Um, guide us through what that, ex that particular experience was like at first. Sure thing. Uh, so, you know, I've always felt that, uh, you know, being a Sikh, obviously I look different. I wear a turban. Um, also people look at you, uh, they have sort of almost a bipolar response um, where on one hand they would uh, view you as being foreign and different and things. But in this community of, uh, entrepreneurship and science and stuff, uh, when people see somebody different, they actually may feel that you've been able to, you know, uh, 
cross over difficulties and make your own path. So there may be something special about this person, whether there is or isn't, I'm not saying that there's anything special about me, but people's perception actually, it can actually work in your favor as opposed to work against you. If you have the self-confidence to believe in yourself, if you don't see yourself as being a disadvantaged or somehow you've got a chip on your shoulder or something of that sort, if you come across as being a, a person who is just should be judged for what they do and not how they look, now soon people just look past it and it just it becomes transparent. If you yourself feel that you're different all the time, then it comes across in how you walk, how you talk, and I think then it starts adding up. Guide us through what it was like forming your first business, especially not having an MBA, not having that business experience. Um, and what were the qualities you think, reflecting back on that time, that enabled you to be successful? Was it like a, a bug that, that bit you that you wanted to just sort of continue founding companies or was it something bigger? So I think uh, you look at what you want to get out of life, right? Meaning there's a few things people may want to get out of life. Certainly economic outcomes are uh, one aspect of it. Uh, so, you know, uh, I, and I will not say that that was not uh, something that uh, influenced my thinking. Uh, but beyond that, it's a question of, you know, if you have the tools to make a difference and build products that will really help uh, improve medical care, you would almost be negligent not to do that. You would be negligent if you've been given the uh, opportunity and the privilege to have access to those technologies and you know how to do it. You're not missing anything. Why would you not actually go out and uh, create those products? So that was important for me because from a legacy standpoint, eventually you want to see how many lives did you touch? How many, uh, what improvements were you able to create in uh, care delivery? So that is what sort of keeps me going at that point in time. And it's the economic outcome, uh, while not zero, is uh, definitely less of a factor relative to other things. So that's what has kept me going. And you talk about legacy and impacting lives. Uh, it's at least 5 million patients have benefited from your uh, technologies, right? Definitely. We, in fact, uh, uh, over a million patients every year now are impacted by uh, some of the products that we've been creating. Yeah. And what, is, what are some of the companies and, pro and, and projects you're currently involved in? So currently, I'm involved with uh, uh, one of my companies, Instilla, is creating a liquid embolic uh, product. Uh, a liquid embolic basically is a liquid material that can be delivered into flowing blood and can almost instantly shut down the flow of blood. Uh, sometimes blood flows to undesirable locations, such as tumors or a hemorrhage that might be taking place after a car accident, uh, or there may be fistulas of some sort. So there are a number of reasons why blocking blood flow to certain sites is important. If you try right now, people try to put down little plastic balls and stuff like that, little beads to try to do that or put coils that hope that the blood will clot around it, uh, little fuzzy hairball type of coils. But liquids will penetrate much deeper. And if they are water-based liquids with, which react almost instantly, we can cast out the tumor down to the capillary level and uh, hopefully much more effectively treat them. So that is something that Instilla is doing. We are in the midst of 
U.S. Uh, pivotal clinical trial in 25 sites, and doing it in the midst of a pandemic is an interesting exercise, but we're making good progress over there. So that's one company. The other company is a company called Rijoni, where we are creating materials that were inside the uterus. Uh, lots of procedures are done in, uh, for women inside the uterus, uh, such as the removal of fibroids or septae or, or polyps and things when they're cut out for people who are in, uh, fertile and uh, they need to be treated for this infertility or some other problem. But that resection can create scar and make them infertile further. It can fail. So we are developing uh, systems that material which would be administered inside the uterus sort of serve as a bandage and a separator of the uterine walls uh, for uh, a couple of weeks and then allow uh, safety to absorb. Uh, women who get uh, ablations done uh, for severe menstrual bleeding, uh, the ablations can cause severe scarring and lead to other complications. So hopefully this is a way to uh, people who have late stage abortions, the uterus is scraped up you know, quite a bit and can cause scarring. So there's about a one and a half million women every year who have problems related to scarring from, from these. So we hope to be able to prevent that. So that's another thing that we're doing. And the third thing that uh, we're doing uh, uh, from my holding company, Praman, is we're creating a, a, a hemostatic patch, something to stop severe bleeding uh, from, say, the liver or spleen. or So you would, within 30 seconds, you just hold this down. It's a completely absorbable material within three days it would absorb. But at that point in time, it almost within 30 seconds stops any kind of bleeding, no matter how strong. Uh, there's nothing like it right now. There are products that J&J has, which are uh, use bodies, uh, clotting kind of uh, uh, cascade materials. But this is completely synthetic, doesn't cause any clotting uh, issues, can be used with patients who are completely anticoagulated. So would be a big step forward in managing hemorrhage. So those are uh, three projects I'm involved with. I'm on the board of several companies. Uh, one of the companies uh, uh, is developing uh, uh, clot retrieval systems, a, a company called Imperative Care, where we go deep inside the brain to pull clot out. And meaning every day we're getting stories of uh, people who are essentially would have been dead for life or for vegetable, and we pull the clot out and they wake up on the, on the table and they are able to talk again and, and walk again and do the things. As a serial entrepreneur, I think you're in a really good place to talk about uh, the biggest impediments for a successful business like the ones that that, that you founded. Um, and I'm thinking particularly about issues like finding talent, um, issues like regulation, um, and how is Massachusetts in a better position than other places to run these kinds of, of businesses? I think uh, the regulations are what they are. And uh, uh, yes, they are barriers, uh, but I think they are barriers that... Uh, uh, ensure good quality of products and a degree of uh, professionalism that uh, may be absent in some other parts of the world. So I think while we all have our moments where we curse the FDA, I think the FDA is a force for good and uh, it helps protect consumers for uh, uh, making sure that the therapies and products that emerge from the medical device or the pharmaceutical industry are uh, truly, you know, have solid science behind them. Uh, with regards to Massachusetts being uh, a good place, uh, I think uh, it definitely is, and especially the Boston area, meaning the talent availability, uh, which incidentally, as you pointed out, is one of the big bottlenecks in scaling 
businesses in starting businesses. When you're starting a business, you know, it's very hard to attract talent because people don't know whether the business is going to be successful or not, or, you know, early stages. And you really want to hitch your wagon to something which could just be a dream. So getting talent at the initial stages is not hard uh, for us, but at the later stages, it becomes uh, harder because now you've got uh, many more people you need and you can't just reach out to your own network. You've got to go out and find people just the way any other company finds people through recruiters and referrals and whatnot. Uh, so what I would say is that if you treat people well, you treat people fairly, and uh, that word gets around, uh, people will come back and want to work with you again. Uh, so we've, we've benefited a lot from that, uh, that uh, anytime I want somebody to come work with us, all we have to say is mention that to them and they will drop anything that they're doing and come and work for us. So we are fortunate because we've treated them well. Uh, when companies scale, it can be a challenge because the fight for talent in the Boston area is, is ferocious. There's a lot of companies and the pharma companies and biotech companies have a lot more money than medtech does and they pay better. So it can be a challenge to try to attract uh, talent uh, as we scale forward. I'm sort of leaning into the issue of, of um, the, how attractive STEM is to students in the U.S. Um, and do you, what are your thoughts on just how STEM is perceived or uh, how attractive it is to young people? And is the U.S. doing enough to really foster an environment where students would be interested in these fields? Yeah, no, you're putting your finger on something very important, meaning I sometimes go to uh, graduations, for example, right? Meaning I, I've gone to the, my alma mater, University of Texas's graduation, and I remember sitting on the stage uh, looking at the uh, uh, people crossing uh, that uh, the podium, receiving their degrees. And I would say uh, more than half uh, were not first-generation, at least, uh, 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 Americans. Uh, so uh, there were so many of them who were, you know, of uh, Chinese origin, Indian origin, Korean origin, uh, uh, etc. And I, I looked at that and I said, you know, uh, not that that's a bad thing, uh, but uh, why are not more mainstream Americans uh, pursuing science? But I, I, I know that this is something that is near and dear to both my wife, Deepika, who's uh, uh, big on the education side of things, uh, and our whole family, meaning we've tried to do it from my kids actually helping with uh, uh, mentor, mentor children. My son is the uh, you know, uh, captain of his robotics team. My daughter is the captain of the national uh, in Lexington uh, High School, and and we mentor many kids as uh, possible to be able to ensure that STEM is not perceived as something that is either hard or foreign or, or not an attractive career or just difficult, uh, uh, especially with uh, girls uh, after, you know, middle school, uh, making sure that those seeds are planted early on, that uh, they continue. So, I, I do feel that uh, we are uh, not doing uh, enough. Uh, um, to make it attractive uh, as a choice. Uh, and it may be perceived as being formidable for whatever reason. Uh, it isn't. It, it's, not, it's not hard. Don't dream small, is what I would say to anybody. Uh, what's the point of dreaming small? If you're going to dream, you might as well dream big. Oh, that is such, such a lovely thing to say. That's excellent advice. You've impacted millions of lives. Um, and created, you know, over 
one and a half billion dollars in revenue. Um, but your heart and uh, the impact and legacy that you want to have extends beyond just your businesses. Um, through your foundation, you have um, approached issues that are probably out of the mainstream lens. Um, can you talk a little bit about those issues? I came to the conclusion that, uh, you know, the trillions of dollars that we are spending as the world and country uh, to try to tackle this pandemic, <clears throat> we're uh, trying to put out a fire. We're not asking the question, where did the fire start and why did the fire start in the first place? Why do these zoonotic organisms migrate out from deep forests and end up creating these pandemics? Why does that happen? Why do they cross species? Why do they go from bats to humans? And if you sit and analyze that, you come to the conclusion that it is because of depredation of the forests and environment and of man-animal conflict through wildlife trafficking, where bats that were living quietly in a cave are now being grabbed by nets and sold in markets where they harbor these pathogens. Those drip onto civet cats and to pangolins that are being exploited and coming from <clears throat> faraway nations being slaughtered in the Chinese market, for example. And that contaminated uh, uh, product, either somebody touches their nose uh, while they're uh, uh, in the midst of that process, and suddenly it transfers from the bat to the pangolin to the human, and then that person goes and spreads it and the pandemics originate. So what's the solution to this? It's not to be able to coming up with only new vaccines, although we need to do that to control this and that is what is needed, but we gotta prevent the fires from starting. We cannot keep spending trillions of dollars putting fires out. And there are probably 500,000 more of these types of viruses out there in the wild waiting to get out if we keep encroaching upon that habitat and we keep exploiting these species. So I've been spending a lot of my energy, time, money on preventing wildlife trafficking and to be able to not only save species like rhinos and elephant ivory and uh, those types of things, but also trafficking of a number of other types of animals and smugglers and these are the same gangs that either traffic humans, traffic animals, they traffic drugs, they, they launder money. So it's that same networks. And to be able to go after these folks and prevent this from happening and to be able to put solid worldwide type of regulations that countries kind of rally together and put in place. Otherwise, it's like a balloon. You squeeze one side, they go to another side. You try to uh, work with the Thai authorities, they'll go through Laos. Now, but you know the demand has to be shut down and demand comes from China, it comes from US. US is the second largest demand point for wildlife products. China is the first. So to be able to do this so that we not only have a legacy where we can continue to enjoy environments which are unpolluted and wildlife that's uh, species that still exist, but it's also self-preservation now uh, is, uh, is, is something that, so th this is sort of the big picture that I wanna spend. We do a number of other things which are related to education and uh, human welfare, et cetera. Uh, but I think uh, those are uh, all more to alleviate my own conscience than to actually make a real impact. To make a real impact, I think it's the uh, preventing wildlife trafficking and having uh, species conservation, wildlife conservation, environmental conservation is what we all need to act upon. 
that intersection of public health and environmentalism, you know, we need to be able to spread that message more and just how these issues of public health or, or environmentalism are not isolated issues. Similar, similarly, immigration um, is not an isolated issue. It, it impacts our entire economy and our entire society. And I keep mentioning it, if without immigrants, we probably would not have the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines because they both have immigrant co-founders. Um, you've had a very... Um, uh, terrific experience as an entrepreneur, um, but as a member of the Sikh community, how do you feel and what is your message to Americans when they, you know, are tempted to feel some sort of xenophobia um, in reaction, you know, a very strong reaction to terrorist attacks and, uh, but also political rhetoric? So, yeah, so, you know, it's important to understand uh, who the Sikhs are and why they look the way they look. Sikhs were created uh, as soldier saints. They were supposed to be people who were, you know, uh, adhere to the three pillars of Sikhism, which was uh, to uh, remember a higher power, uh, to work with the honest sweat of their brow, and to share what they had uh, with others. So these were the three pillars of Sikhism. And Sikhs were created when there was an oppressive environment prevailing in India of mass conversions and and uh, uh, the majority of uh, people didn't have anywhere else to turn. So they were created as a group to protect others. And they were given certain edicts to not be under the influence of drugs and alcohol, to have a, uh, a weapon uh, 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 which was to be used in defense and not an offense at all times, uh, to, you know, uh, there were a number of things that helped them control uh, how they acted and how they, and part of that was they were to be given a distinctive uniform so that they could stand out and not merge in. So if you think about a terrorist, a terrorist doesn't want to stand out, they want to merge in. So why would you put on a turban, have an unshorn beard and show up in public if you were a terrorist? That is not what people would do. People, a terrorist wants to merge in, a Sikh wants to stand out. Unfortunately, images on TV that uh, show somebody out in Afghanistan with a turban uh, can be construed as being the same individual who is out over here, uh, and people don't understand the difference. Uh, what's the way around it is education. And uh, uh, one of the unfortunate uh, but potentially saving grace type of side effects of these shootings, whether they are the FedEx facility a couple of weeks ago, or the temple shooting in Milwaukee, or, or many such things that have happened, unfortunate incidents of violence against Sikhs, at least help further the conversation and, and raise the awareness as to who these people really are and that they mean you no harm. In fact, they were created with the explicit purpose for people to go seek help from them. Despite this, America has been uh, allowed you to create a legacy that you are still creating and still fashioning. Um, and it, it is a home for immigrants regardless who, wherever they come from, you know, they're allowed to be American. They don't have to shed their past identities just to be here. They don't need a long lineage um, in order to succeed in business or in life. Look, America, I think there is no uh, parallel to what this country is. 
this country has given me a chance given me an opportunity to do all the things that i would i don't think i could even have done these things in my own native india it would have been hard for me to achieve this so i think we are quick to take sides and blame the system and blame others but america is uh, parallel there are no parallels meaning it is an amazing country social media has ended up creating a frenzy which attempts to highlight the exceptions and the silent majority gets ignored i think that the american silent majority is very welcoming very warm and has given me and most of the sick people then uh, you know that i know uh, a great avenue to succeed and they have worked hard and even the folks who were shot in the fedex facility they were 66 years old but they were working the midnight shift the night shifts just to make sure that they're not a burden on the system you know so the work ethos is deeply ingrained of sort of making sure you're not a burden on anybody making sure that you work hard and those values sikh values are american values american values are sikh values i think there's a congruence in that the decimation of of the refugee resettlement program of immigration in the past few years um those things are being turned around and those will ultimately benefit america because immigrants who come here people who choose to come here people who leave everything behind people who are forced to come here have a certain ethos as you said of determination resilience not wanting to be a burden wanting to succeed wanting their children to to, to have better than they did dr amar sahani thank you so much for making the time to be uh, interviewed today for job makers i really appreciate it and i hope that these messages continue to reverberate out there thank you denzel it was my pleasure So happy that you joined us for this week's inspiring story of another immigrant entrepreneur. If you know someone we should talk to, email Denzel, that's D E N Z I L at jobmakerspodcast.org. I'm Denzel Mohammed. Join us next Thursday at noon for another Jobmakers podcast.